I do have one verse to read to you, um, one that I've known for a long time, uh, but I think I'll spend a lifetime trying to understand. Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you love stereotypes? So I I didn't see any hands uh, from people who really appreciated stereotypes, right? Most of us have a negative view of stereotypes. And the reason we do is because they're problematic. Now, sometimes stereotypes are deliberately inaccurate. You, You can see that all over the place when you consider politics, right? You want to frame your opposition in a certain way, so you use a stereotype. And then everybody thinks of that politician in a particular way, namely the stereotype. And even if there's more to them than that, the stereotype is like a wall that you have to get around. Sometimes it's problematic because it's deliberately inaccurate. Other times, it's problematic because once you get to know the person who has been stereotyped, you find out that there's much more to that person than what people said. Or as a matter of fact, you find out that they're completely different than you thought. And that sometimes is a great delight. So stereotypes are problematic that way as well. But more often than not, it seems to me, that stereotypes are not necessarily inaccurate, although they are sometimes. It seems to me more often than not, stereotypes are just incomplete, right? They don't tell the whole story of the individual. So when you think of biblical stereotypes and characters in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, you might think of Paul as a great, detailed maybe intellectual theologian, but not necessarily practical, right? That might be a stereotype concerning Paul. Of course, the problem with that stereotype, not only is it inaccurate, it's incomplete. Because what we know about Paul is that every epistle he wrote, he wrote for a practical reason. He didn't write a systematic theology. He wrote about issues in the church, and he used doctrine to introduce to the people the way they ought to think about X, Y, or Z, including conflict, including things like who Jesus is. As a matter of fact, at the end of every epistle, if you take a look at the epistles of Paul, What you'll find is the first part of the epistle is rather doctrinaire. And the second part of the epistle is routinely practical. 
That's not even to say that doctrine is impractical or that there's nothing practical in the words that precede the practical application by Paul. As a matter of fact, doctrine is exceedingly practical when understood properly. I, I love the way a, a British author put it, F.F. F. Bruce. He said this, Doctrine is never taught in the Bible simply that it may be known. It is taught in order that it may be translated into practice. So when it seems dry, it's because we're not thinking about it in a practical way. And it was intended to be practical. So let's take a look at just a few of the phrases, the key phrases in Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2. The first one I want to highlight is this. In light of God's mercies. That's how he begins this passage. In light of God's mercy. Or to put it another way, I want you to remember or think about God's mercies. And in light of that, here we go. What is the light of God's mercy? For 11 chapters in the book of Romans, Paul has uncovered the mercies of God. He has said that all people are accountable before God, whether Jew or Gentile. And all people are given the grace of God, whether Jew or Gentile. And all people are born into sin, but given the opportunity to be free from the bondage to decay because of Jesus Christ. He said, all people are going to die, but those who trust in Christ will live forever. He has just described the greatest news in the history of humanity. One mercy after another, described in 11 chapters of this epistle. It's interesting to me that he says in this particular passage, in light of God's mercies, plural. Let's expand on that for a moment. Let's go beyond the particular details of the first 11 chapters, which they're overwhelming. And let's remember that God's mercies are new to us every single morning. They're historical, they're personal, they're daily. The grace of the gospel is everywhere. God's mercies over and over again. I, I would like to put it this way. This passage is the great answer to the question, so what? That was one of my favorite phrases when I, when I was a kid. It was a snarky phrase. I'd, so what? I wasn't really asking a question. I was just trying to dismiss whatever somebody had said. But properly understood, the question is really important. So what? In light of God's great mercies, give yourself to God. In light of God's grace mercies, present yourself 
as a living sacrifice. You know what that does? It does something that is opposite frequently of what we think. Paul doesn't introduce this chapter with a command that is be good or else. Be moral or else. Be righteous or else. What he does is he introduces God's great mercy. And he says in light of that, what can you do besides live for Christ? If you understand God's great mercies, you live for Jesus. Thomas Erskine, I'm, I'm into the English this week, um, said this uh, about the Bible and a moral code. He said, in the New Testament, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. Is that beautiful or what? So simple. Religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. In light of God's great mercies, live a life of gratitude before him. And how do you do that? You present your entire body as a living sacrifice. So that's the second phrase. Present your bodies, and by that we don't mean the flesh, although we do. We mean the whole being, and that's what Paul means. Present your whole being to God as a living sacrifice. Now, of course, it's in the context of the ancient understanding of animal sacrifice. Not just New Test, uh, Old Testament understanding of animal sacrifice. The ancients were enamored by animal sacrifice. And sometimes we look at it and think it a brutal activity. You know why we think of it as a brutal activity? Because our meat is wrapped up in plastic at the grocery store. Almost none of us have meat in our refrigerator that came from our farm. With the exception of the Tyrese maybe, but nobody else. So when the ancients thought of a great sacrifice, a practical sacrifice, what did they think of? Even without the prompting of the Old Testament, they thought of what they had. And what did they have? They had what they ate. And they said, this is the greatest sacrifice I have. And it's out of gratitude to the God or the gods that I give it. It was also associated frequently with celebration. And when properly performed, it wasn't even about the sacrifice itself. It was about the heart of the one who was sacrificing in worship. This, this is so replete throughout the Old Testament that you can't hardly avoid it. It's in the law. It's in the prophets. It's in the Psalms. It's everywhere. What is it that's everywhere? Sacrifices, says God, on numerous occasions. I do not desire. What I desire is your heart. The sacrifice is only an example of your heart. 
At one point he said, stop bringing me bulls and goats. I don't need them. Get them out of here. Why? I need your hearts. The bull and goat demonstrates your heart. And if your heart's not in the right place, take your animals away. So in light of God's mercy, I want you, says Paul, to give your whole being to God as a sacrifice. Your heart, your ambitions, your desires, your loves, give them to God as a sacrifice. Then he says it's your spiritual, or some translations say reasonable act of worship. That word is debated endlessly. And I'm not going to get into the debate about whether it's reasonable, rational, or spiritual. I'm just going to leave it there. I do prefer spiritual act of worship because I think that's an all-encompassing word and it's not just about the mind. But no matter. This is your spiritual or reasonable act of worship. So what is worship? We've been talking about that for weeks in a row. It's certainly the activity that you're participating in right now. I'm grateful that there is a liturgy of worship. And you may say, we have a liturgy? Yeah, we do. You know, it's, it's not Anglican. But we got a liturgy. We practice it every Sunday morning. We stand, we pray, we sing, I preach. We conclude the service with a benediction, a sending out. And that too is accompanied by music. It's a liturgy. As a matter of fact, Paul would not diminish the importance of that liturgy in whatever form it comes, depending on your tradition. He would say that's very important. But that's not all it is. Paul said, I want you to give your entire self as a reasonable or spiritual act of worship. Worship is your whole life experience. All of it. It's your walking around, eating, drinking, working, sleeping, recreational life. It's all of it. Everything that's you. Give it to me as an act of worship. Practically, what does this mean? Well, think about your vocation. Think about your job, no matter what it is, where you live or work. It's an act of worship. Adding up a column of numbers. It's an account. It's an act of worship. Taking care of children as a parent. It's an act of worship. Running a business. It's an act of worship. Exercise of the body. It's an act of worship. Dan just told you last week that's a deficiency in his worship. He said he didn't like to exercise. I couldn't help it. I, I saw Lynn turn to Dan when I said exercise is an act of worship. So, <laughs> But think about something even more strange. 
as an act of worship. And don't dismiss it out of hand, okay? I, I love sports. You know that. I, I teach a class at IU on sport history. Tuesday and Thursday. If you want to enroll in it for fun, come on over. It's, it's an act of worship, Tuesday and Thursday. Because I talk about life. I talk about history. I talk about ethics. It's, it's an act of worship for me. It doesn't have to be some high-minded thing. It could be a really practical thing. So here's the kind of weird example for some of you as an act of worship. Because I love sports, I, I'm an avid March Madness fan. <laughs> know where this is going. It's a beautifully constructed play, a perfect shot. Is that an act of worship? Really? Really? Yes and no. No, if the individual is all about self. No, if the individual is not in any way connecting his or her talents to God as a gift. But if that player that's on the court, who's an incredible athlete, understands the great gift that God has given him or her and performs to his highest level as an audience of one, it's an act of worship. Some years ago, I I went over and spoke at Athletes in Action on campus. And they gave me a t-shirt. Love t-shirts. And there was a, an, a symbol on the t-shirt with arms stretched out. And the logo was, or slogan was, an audience of one. An audience of one. Exercise. A beautifully executed play can be an act of worship. You name it. Right now, for yourself, name it. What is something you haven't considered to be an act of worship? It is, if properly understood, because all life is potentially an act of worship. The second verse of this passage says something else. First part of it says everything's an act of worship, so see it that way. The second part of the verse says, I don't want you to be conformed to this world, but I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I would suggest that the greatest well-known paraphrase, I think the greatest paraphrase of those words comes from J.B. Phillips, a paraphrase writer many years ago. And you've probably even heard the phrase and didn't know where it came from. He puts it this way, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God 
remold your heart from within that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the will of God. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. You know, faith is not just some sort of mystical reality that's detached from the world, the physical world, the intellectual world. Not at all. Faith is actually a different perspective on the same reality that all of us experience. That's what faith is. A different perspective on the same reality that everyone experiences. That's faith. So, science is science. But Christians have a unique perspective on it. To paraphrase the words of the psalmist and make them my own, when I look to the heavens, I know there's scientific reasons for it, but I also see the handiwork of God. When I look at biological processes, I know there's a scientific explanation for it, but in those, I see the handiwork of God. I've tried all my life to see the handiwork of God in mathematics. I haven't gotten there yet because I don't like math, but the handiwork of God is there. Psychology, brain science, it's real. But Christians see it differently, the same reality. Economics. Let's put it more simply, money. It is what it is. But for the Christian, it's different than others. So for the Christian, money is given to us so that we could be good stewards of it. And being good stewards of it does not mean hoarding it for ourselves. It means blessing our world with our own prosperity. So, let's get practical if you haven't already thought this as practical with some questions, takeaways, if, if you will. I want you to pause for a minute. Really, I'm going to give you silence. And I want you to think of what a mold of the world is. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, Okay? Think about what is a worldly mold that the, the world squeezes you into. What is it?
Write it down if you have a pen. Just think about it. Now, whatever that was, or the things that you listed, ask this question. How can you be transformed as it relates to that mold by the renewing of your mind? How can you rethink that reality that everyone else experiences? How can you do that? That's an exercise, I believe, that Paul is calling us to. He doesn't give us all the answers. He says, I want you to take your real walking around life, your talking, exercising, living life, and make it conform to the will of God. And I want your mind to be renewed concerning all that activity. It's really common, isn't it, to think about spiritual activities or vocations as being at a higher level than pragmatic or practical vocation. So I get this all the time. People think that somehow my life is more spiritual than a person who's a carpenter. That's just nonsense according to this passage. I've been called to a certain vocation, but it's my vocation To put it another way, running a business is not often seen as a spiritual vocation, but it is, according to Paul. Everything you do is a spiritual vocation. Everything. I remember a long time ago, at least 25 years, I was thinking about transitions and thinking about moving in to a direction that you wouldn't call necessarily vocational ministry. And I said something about it to someone. And her response to me was this. Well, then what are you going to do with all that gospel that's bottled up inside you? Now, first of all, I didn't respond very well to that because I think there's a good answer for it. But second, I want to acknowledge something. That person knew me, and they thought that my vocation ought to be the explication, the explanation, the proclamation of the good news. She was saying to me, you've got so much good news concerning Jesus Christ bottled up inside of you. you got to figure out a way to let it out. And this is the most appropriate way to let it out for you. And actually, she was right. But it wouldn't have been right for everyone. So the proper response would be, What are you going to do with all that gospel bottled up inside of you? I'm going to let it ooze every pore of my being. 
I'm going to let it come out in the handiwork I do. I'm going to let it come out in the relationships I have. I'm going to let it come out as a father. I'm going to let it come out as an employee. I'm going to let it come out because the gospel that is bottled up inside of every one of us is a living sacrifice of praise. Just figure out how to let it out. Because that's what we were made for. So, the parting question I have for all of us, it's very simple. How can my entire life be a living, grateful offering to God? How can my entire life be a living, grateful offering to God? At the expense of being redundant, I'm going to reference a book that I've referenced before. I I would recommend you get it. If you don't, that's fine. But the idea is just great. It's called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warner. I'm going to give you just a few of the chapter titles in that book. I actually think it's Romans 1 through 2. Here's some of the titles. Remember, it's the liturgy of, okay? The liturgy of walking. The liturgy of making bread. The liturgy of brushing teeth. See? Ordinary. I really like this one. The liturgy of losing your keys. Now, someone from a high church background might want to dismiss this, but this person's more high church than me. There's something to be learned in life, is her premise, about God, no matter what it is. The last one I just think is funny, and I like, because I like these things. The liturgy of leftovers. (laughs) I'd almost rather have it the second time than the first time. I mean, can you imagine what such a liturgy would be? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of leftovers is gratitude. (laughs) I am so grateful they're still there. I'd rather go home at lunchtime and pull out leftovers than to go to an elegant restaurant. I love it. Thanks be to God. Now, I say all that to be kind of coy, but I don't want to diminish the high level of liturgy that we experience in worship. You know what happens in worship? We train our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our feet 
to understand how to be a living sacrifice before God. So, go do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for life, every bit of it. Thank you for the ups and downs. We thank you for the joys and the sorrow. We thank you for the pleasure and the pain. We thank you for all of it because in some way it's there for us to learn from, to grow from. And it's there so that we can step into it with a different perspective than may naturally be ours. But we need help doing that, Lord. We need help this week walking into life and seeing every part of it as an act of worship. So, Lord, we pray that you will open the eyes of our hearts so we can see and understand what it means on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday to live as a sacrifice before you. In your name we pray. Amen.